Hello, and welcome to Disgorged, a fun and spirited look at the world of wine and drinking. I'm your host, Zach Jabal. Do you enjoy learning about wine? Want to find amazing bottles to share with your friends and family? Well, check out my website, www.vinetrainings.com, that's vine with a V, for much more on the world of wine. And if you're in the Seattle area, I also have an exciting event coming up on December 20th, my Holiday Wine Spectacular, which features great wines to taste and buy. Again, visit my website for more information. Coming up in a minute on Disgorged, I'll talk with Eric Liedholm, a man whose experience and knowledge in the wine and spirits industry is legendary and inspiring. But first, a thought. The rise of the craft distilling industry has brought with it positives and negatives. There's no doubt that it's thrilling to have so many more options than before when it comes to spirits, be they gin, whiskey, or even more esoteric categories like Amaros and liqueurs. That said, one of the major issues I have with the growth of this industry is that many people are getting into it without really understanding how challenging distilling truly is. Homebrewing seems like a natural analog, but the reality is that brewing beer is much less risky in every sense than distilling. A poorly made batch of beer may taste bad, and it may leave you at the cost of your raw materials, but it's decidedly less likely to contain toxic compounds or even explode than home distilling. There's also the issue of time. While distilling a clear spirit like vodka doesn't take all that much longer than making beer, dark spirits like whiskey require years in barrel before they reach their final flavor. Now, if you don't know what you're doing, you can easily spend that time and money only to end up with a mediocre result. Which, look, if you're doing it as a home project, that's not so bad, but the problem for me arises when a new distillery tries to pass off their poorly made spirits as ready for the public market. Fortunately, there are many craft distillers out there, and few have gone to the lengths that my guest went through to learn his craft. Joining me today on Disgorge is Eric Liedholm, the owner and distiller at Wildwood Spirits, as well as the company wine director for John Howie Restaurants in the Seattle area. Eric, thanks so much for joining me. Hey, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. I mean, uh, I'm doing uh, my monthly taxes at the cool. distillery, so yeah. as good as I could be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's. Uh, I can't imagine that's like the uh, the best day of the year. It's like it's is it which is worse, that or inventory day at one of the restaurants? Oh God, these taxes! Because like uh, it's like bean counting, but because um, yeah. I have to report uh, to the Washington Department of Revenue, the Washington Liquor State, you know, their control board, mm-hmm. and then uh, the federal government. So, you know, it's like a alphabet soup kind of thing. Yeah. So counting bottles of wine is is actually a pleasure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because you get to look at least a few of them and you're like, oh yeah, I like that wine. That's a nice thought. <laughs> I know. Um, I haven't seen that in a long time. Or, ooh, I can't believe I still have that. Yeah, you're like, oh, <laughs> maybe we should. Who am I going yeah. to make sell that? <laughs> exactly. Um, well, anyhow, I, I, I wanted to talk to you because um, I, I had a, a few sort of um, topics that I thought would be interesting to to get your opinion on um, and to talk about. But actually, my first one, since um, I just, I, I've been asking this question to people when I want to have them on the show is, is how did you get started in the, in the wine and spirits industry? Is there, is there, was there a, a moment in your life or a, a job that, that sort of led you on the first steps down this path? Yeah, it wasn't necessarily an epiphany. It was kind of a, uh, I don't know. It's like a, each experience was like compound interest. And uh, you really are doing your taxes right now. Oh, I know, I know. It's in the brain. It's pathetic. <laughs> but uh, you know, ultimately, it was it was being exposed to wine at a at a young age, um, and so it, I think by being taught at a young age to appreciate it, I didn't necessarily abuse it until now. I'm old and my, my liver <laughs> can't take it. Um, but you know, my 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 grandfather, my dad, always spoke of it and were really interested in it. And when we would travel to Europe. Um, I really got to experience some 
obscure wines in Switzerland, for instance. Like I had a fondant when I was 13. Oh, wow. and, and this up above the Lauterbrunnen Valley with my grandpa having a little picnic and looking at this magnificent vista of the Alps. And so um, it kind of taught me that wine can uh, re- relate to your, a certain experience. And you can then, whenever you have that particular wine, you can kind of teleport back in time and have that experience again. So it, it kind of planted a seed, but actually um, growing up, I had wanted to become a chef. And so all through college, I cooked and um, uh, after graduation, had the intent of, of, of kind of heading down that path. And while I was working in this restaurant in Michigan, a woman named Madeline Trafon kind of inspired me about wine and the, the joys of wine and not necessarily what was in the glass, but how it got into the bottle. So it kind of started this domino effect. And um, I then at this restaurant, I, I worked in the kitchen during the day and managed the floor at night, um, obviously before I had any kind of relationship. Um, but uh, it uh, kind of changed my, my path for sure. And, and to this day, I look at Madeline Trafon as this really great kind of cool Yoda. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's, it, that that that's really what what kind of changed my path a bit. You know, always been interested in restaurants ever since I was a kid, but the specific discipline changed um, with with kind of her inspiration and her approach to wine, which was refreshingly not stuffy. Yeah, yeah, and I can imagine, you know, there's a little bit more of an embrace of that sort of. Um let's say lack of stuffiness. Now I feel like it was probably a little bit more in short supply um, in, you know, sort of uh, previous eras of, of this industry. You know, I think it was hard to find people who didn't take it too seriously. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's changed now. The seriousness has changed now to the point where it's even beyond serious. It's like (laughs) fanatical and faulty and it's weird. Yeah. Um, You know, because back in like the early nineties, when I really started to get into wine, I mean, there was, there was no internet really. I mean, there wasn't, and there were books that were probably out of date. Um, and, uh, it required a lot of kind of like law school research. You mm-hmm. know, when I was studying for my advanced, it was like, it like the paper chase kind yeah. of thing. <laughs> um, and, uh, so, uh, the seriousness then was more kind of like how to get information. And now it's kind of like, uh, who do I know more than, I know more than you. Yes. I know more than you. (laughs) Well, and I think, you know, unfortunately, along with that, too, there's this element of like weirdly both trying to prove who knows more. But there's also this I feel like there's a strange phenomenon of like groupthink where where there's in a way, even in the time that I've been in the industry, which is not as long as that, um, there's more of a of a sense of like these are the these are the best wines or these are the best producers or these are the best regions. And th- I don't mean mm-hmm. that everyone, I mean, there was obviously some of that, but that was more about like, because all you could get in the U S was, you know, Bordeaux and Burgundy and a few other places. And and now it just, I feel like there's so much more kind of dogma weirdly, even though the world of wine is so much broader now than it used to be. Yeah. Oh, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. Yeah. You said it. <laughs> um, so I think, to to come back to what you were we talking about just a moment ago with uh, with sort of studying and um, 
digging into things. Uh, it, it is always you've always struck mm-hmm. me as someone who who kind of ends up very deeply fascinated with whatever you're uh, studying or or working on. Um, and you know, I, I think you could probably uh, speak to that with, with studying for your uh, sommelier exams and also obviously di- uh, getting into um, distilling, which we'll, I want to get into in a moment. But do you sometimes mm-hmm. have to like restrain that impulse in yourself? Do you have to be like, I can't. I can't go all the way down this rabbit hole or do you just kind of let it happen? Yeah, I just kind of let it happen. And I, 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 I don't want to fall into the rabbit hole because I do like having a life and I love being with my family and friends. And, um, it's like, it, it, it's my work life and it also happens to be my hobby. So because they're kind of combined, um, I, I've never kind of fallen down that path where I'm, you know, grinding away and not having any fun. I mean, this is fun. I mean, uh, having a, a, a life in, in alcohol is fun. And it stops being fun when you have to immerse yourself and potentially drown yourself in all of this data. And so, you know, I took it slow. I mean, when I was young, I took it pretty quick, um, like with the advanced and all that back in the plat, you know, the upper Jurassic period time. <laughs> um, but, but now I could kind of take a leisurely pace, like with the whole learning, the analytical approach to distilling, you know, it was over many, many, many years until finally I did, uh, went to the Institute of Brewing and Distilling to get legit. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was all kind of, uh, you know, take your time, learn when you can. And, and as long as it's fun and enjoyable, then keep doing it. Um, but yeah, the the falling down the rabbit hole I see as as being uh, a bit of a, a failing amongst uh, some people in in the business that they have to know it all now. They're like 23 years old and want to be master sommeliers. And it's like enjoy it. How do you enjoy it if you're just do, you know doing it that way? I mean, yeah. maybe they do enjoy that method, but that's not my style. Well, and I think it I think it's two things too. I think it's a little bit like what you were talking about. They they enjoy the the power and the sense of sort of importance that you get from it. I'm not sure that the actual act of acquiring that knowledge is as enjoyable as it could be. And I think the other part is uh, there's this sort of, there's a, there's more of a, a rubric laid out now in a way, you know, that it's, it's become at least within the sort of, very small sommelier community there's a there's a, mm-hmm. a cohort of people who are like i'm going to you know i'm going to go from knowing nothing about wine to being a master sommelier and <clears throat> pardon me in five years six years whatever you know and it's not about like hey maybe i should spend some time working in a restaurant maybe i should spend some time working in a wine right. at a winery maybe i should spend some time doing literally anything else but focusing yeah. very narrowly on this goal uh, because you know it's a little bit like you know you kind of then you end up not only down the rabbit hole but like all that's around you is dirt like you can't there's no there's no perspective and so I feel like when yeah. I meet those people I'm just like you can t- you know a lot about wine but you can't even talk to me another wine professional with a whole lot of perspective let alone like I don't know someone who doesn't know anything about wine like I, I just it, it, yeah. it baffles me that that's where the thing has gone yeah oh I know I know yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, let's talk about let's talk about distilling before we get ourselves sure, in too much sure. trouble. Um, so yeah, no kidding. Um, so I mean, to to not um, necessarily belabor the point too much, but I think it's really it's really been interesting to me that you went 
um, that you kind of ended up as interested in distilling as um, as I think you've been in part because like distilling strikes me as more than, you know, more than to some extent winemaking or even brewing, you know, a very kind of scientific undertaking. Mm-hmm. Um, is that your, is that your sense of it too? Is that kind of the, the part of, is it that sort of very analytical, um, you know, you're, you're, you're doing chemistry basically in a way that's as opposed to maybe some, you know, biology with wine or, or um, beer. Is that, is that how it seems to you too? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, um, Alan Martell, my ninth grade uh, physics and chemistry teacher, is getting the last laugh because um, when I was in high school, thinking I'm never going to need to know this stuff, an yeah. azotrope. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so yeah, he's laughing now. But um, yeah, there is a it's a de- there's a definite analytical approach to it, which which I really appreciate. Um, my my parents. Uh, uh, I'm kind of an amalgam of my parents. My dad's an economist and my mom's a music teacher. Ah. So I think I have both both of that in me. And so the creative side and the, the kind of getting back to my culinary roots is satisfied with distilling. Um, and sort of the more theory and analytical side, which I also enjoy, is fulfilled by, you know, knowing a lot about biochemistry. And that, it's really interesting. Um, and, and the thing about distilling up, which is different than wine is it's very much binary. I mean, it's cause and effect. I mean, an azotrope happens, the separation of two liquids happens and it's, it will happen. If you get your temperature to the right degree, you're going to have a separation of, of alcohol vapor from the water. And it's just a fact It just happens. And so I like the security of that and being able to kind of control that is is a satisfying experience and then tweaking the the distillate and like if we're making gin um with botanicals is 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 fascinating to me because you can you know the world is your oyster and i kind of satisfy the culinary side by you know thinking well what flavor goes with what based on my my experience in food and you know not putting botanicals in for the sake because they're different but weird, but because they taste good together. Um, and so it kind of, it, it just has become a real satisfying thing for me. And then the business side of me is like, great, we have vertical integration within our restaurants. <laughs> yeah. So, so it kind of covers all the bases and uh, yeah, it's been, it's been, it's been a challenge juggling, um, you know, owning and making booze to also being responsible for a bunch of restaurants, but, yeah. um, you know, I'm able to find time and still have, have time to, to spend with my family. Well, and the good news is if you do need to unwind, you have ready access to many forms of ethyl alcohol. Well, yeah, you know, that's, that, that is, uh, you know, it's the nature of the beast quality control. and all. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, without, without maybe getting too scientific because, um, my night, my high school science teachers will be disappointed if they listen to this podcast and my inability to keep up. <laughs> um, from a from a distilling standpoint, um, and if you have to, if it has to be chemical, I totally get it. What is, what's the principal difference or differences between making, um, you know, clear spirits, uh, vodka and gin, particularly that, that you started out doing at Wildwood and and transitioning mm-hmm. into brown spirits? I mean, my understanding, and you can tell me I'm wrong very please do if I am is that you know one big difference sure. is obviously you know with the with a with a whiskey or whatever you're you're obviously getting a lot of flavor from the 
the barrel that you, or the whatever you're aging it in. But it, it strikes me that the, the the aim in distillation and the the method of distillation is quite different as well. Well, uh, when you're making um, clear spirits, in in our case, the clear spirits we make uh, are gin and vodka. So because of that, we have to make uh, a neutral grain spirit, which requires a, a, a different kind of still, a column still. And uh, we have to get the spirit to 95% alcohol, or we can't really call it a neutral grain spirit. Mm-hmm. And we, end, we couldn't then make vodka from that. Um, to me, vodka is uh, the most difficult thing to make because um, by definition, it's a flavorless and odorless material. And it takes a lot of work to make something not smell or taste like anything. Um, and we work really hard to do that because we use that vodka for the base of our gin. Um, brown spirits are great because they're so easy to make and they require just a pot still, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so you need a, a much more simple piece of equipment. And uh, a brown spirit is much more forgiving Uh you know, with all the work we do in trying to eliminate the, the less desirable odors or congeners with vodka, we want to incorporate some of the the nether regions into into our our, our dark spirits, and and so by that it, it's almost refreshing when we get to make uh, bourbon as as we're doing now, um, because we can add some more funky elements to it, you know, the ones that are non-toxic and somewhat pleasing. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And it, the only difference really is, is the apparatus used, the substrate or the material that we use. And then, um, you know, being patient and making sure you're, you're patient while the, the bourbon ages, we, we chose not to release a, a, a clear whiskey. Um, just not our, our style, but some people do it and that's cool, but we, we just kind of rely on our gin and our vodka to, hopefully pay the bills until the, the brown spirits are ready. And then, you know, so obviously you're making different decisions about, um, well, you're distilling differently. You're making somewhat dis- different decisions about where you're, you know, where you're making your cuts um, out of the still. And then how mm-hmm. did you decide, where did you choose to go um, as far as like, I mean, obviously with bourbon, there's a lot of, um, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of ways in which your hands are kind of tied with, with, uh, you know, or, not tied, but at least you have a lot of direction. Obviously, it's got to be 51% or more corn in the mash, and you've got to age it in new American oak and all that. But but with I know when you were talking about putting together the the gin, there was a lot of small batches, a lot of taste testing. With whiskey, that's harder because you know the time component is such that you can't just infuse for whatever the period you infuse gin and then give it a try. You've got to put it in barrels and let it age to get to the point where it's mm-hmm. um, in, where you can drink it. How did you how did you go about kind of formulating um, the the recipe for for the bourbon? Well, uh, what I what I looked at with with bourbon in particular was what what is it that what what is the marker for bourbon and what makes it stand out from other whiskeys? Um, the requirement of bourbon is that you use new charred barrels, um, and why is that? Well, that creates the bourbon style. You get a lot of esterification that happens between a highly charred barrel and the spirit that enters the barrel. So it's more vanilla and confectionery, <clears throat> you know. And so I, I kind of went off that as the riff. Um, 
to create our bourbon. You know, if you look at like a uh, Scotch whiskey, um, you, you, the requirement is that you used a used barrel um, because you, you're not going after the confectionery notes. You're going for more of the savory floral qualities. And so with our bourbon, I kind of, well, what can we do to highlight the confectionery notes? And one was getting really good barrels. And so we spent a little bit more on our barrels. <clears throat> we buy them from A&K in Missouri. And because uh, we know that there's got to be an interaction that happens between the spirit and the barrel. And uh, so the the ultimate quality of our bourbon is 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 only on the the spirit, but it's also the barrel. And so um, we were really conscious about who we we're going to buy our barrels from. And uh, ultimately, when we made that decision, we we're like, great, of course, they're the most expensive. <laughs> so, uh, but um, if they're going to have a partnership for a couple of years, and so by spending a little bit more on the barrels, um, we find that we're getting a lot more esterification than we would if we got to be a lesser quality barrel. And um, so far it's worked really well. We have, we have the benefit of sending a lot of our um, spirits to Michigan State University for analysis mm. and with the biochemists who worked with us in development of our spirits. And so, you know, he puts them in, he uses all this kind of spectrometer uh, type equipment to give us, you know, flavor readings and tracking our esterification. So we kind of get up to date scores as the, as the interaction is, is taking place. And so we're, we're kind of head of the curve and, and it's a lot of it is because of the quality of barrel we got. And then uh, we tried to look at what interactions happen better when you're going for that confectionery notes. And, and for our experience, it was more um, of a weeded bourbon. So we do 80% corn and 20% wheat. And uh, we find that there's a nice sweet spot with that. Mm -hmm. And in addition, we put our um, spirit in the barrel at kind of a lower strength. So we, our cast strength is 60% okay. when it enters the barrel. And there's more, you get more confectionery notes at a lower um, strength than you would if you put it in a higher um, alcohol strength. So if you went in at 70%, you'd probably start getting more of the savory elements mm -hmm. uh, of the wood rather than the more kind of luxurious, sweet, um, more kind of hedonistic notes. Interesting. Do you end up with uh, a, a lower uh, alcohol end result as well? Um, or does it just mean you water back a little less or what? Yeah, well, we just, when, when we put it into barrel, we, we just proof it down to 60%. And then in two years, we'll, we'll have lost some some water mm -hmm. and uh, just basically because where they're stored. And so it'll be a slightly higher cask proof, but we'll compensate. We're going to go into, into bottle at 45% alcohol okay. um, as opposed to something higher. Um, but we like 45 because a lot of people like to put a, a cube or two in their in their drink so it'll you know dilute down to maybe 42 by the time they finish off a, a glass that's been interfered with with an ice cube um <laughs> but uh that, not that, uh, not that, that you have that any per, not that you have any personal preference in the matter not at all not at all but uh you know everybody has their preference but we wanted to try to uh take that into account and in, in what in what people are going to like most so um, so those, those were some decisions that were made, um, in 
coming up with the dark spirits. And you're getting close to releasing your first batch, right? It's coming out fairly soon. Well, we're we're actually selling our futures now. Okay. Um, uh, it won't be released until 2018. Oh, okay, okay. Um, yeah, but we're um, it's it's moving right along. It's been we've we've had a lot of 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 success with it, and some people just bottle it and sell it now. Like, nah. Yeah. Not gonna do it. Yeah, I think that the that element of patience is like the I feel like, you know, with so much of the, the craft distilling that's that's cropped up over the last uh, half a decade or so, you know, you just I, I think the people it, yeah. it strikes me from my perspective that the people who had the patience, who've been able to wait, those are the people who've done best. And if you try and if you try and shortcut too much, then it, it, it just I think it shows it and it doesn't always yeah. it doesn't always show right away. But but I think it's just it, you know if you're if you're putting if you're if you're hitting the market after you know less than a year and some tiny little casks it's like I don't know like it's just it's fine but it's not yeah it's not that it's not what it could be yeah everybody you know every producer's got their own their own thing I mean our business model is such that um, we can we can be patient and and make sure that what we ultimately end up selling is something that's delicious at least by our delicious yeah uh so on a totally unrelated note um what is it uh what is it out there whether it's uh it can be wine spirits a cocktail a beer i don't care anything in particular lately you've had that you that you particularly that you really like that maybe either well known caught you by surprise um anything that's really been exciting for you that you don't make i should clarify not to that, yeah no 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 um yeah i mean i'm always I'm always blown away by the latest thing. Um, uh, you know, I just, I, I drink a lot of champagne uh, and yes. I've just, there's been so much consistency lately with, you know, producers, whether it's a, a grower producer or even the negotiants. I mean, I just think champagne is, is the quality of champagne has just gotten better and better every year. And it's just really exciting to me. Um, and as a buyer, I'm, I'm trying to get more people excited about champagne and to think that you have to have champagne as a celebratory beverage. You can have champagne as an aperitif or you, you know, and course it out and have it with a meal, um, you know, from a lot of people who get tied up in food and wine pairing. It's, it's kind of a universal panacea to, to cure the food and wine dilemma. What goes with what? Yeah, I was gonna say it's always so, my like key to unlocking. Like, if I'm like, what can I do here? What would it like? I'm stuck. It's a tough pairing. Like, champagne is like, it's almost never wrong. Like, you got to find a real like. There's only a few dishes I can think of that I've had where I'd be like, eh, this wouldn't work. I can't think of a champagne that would at least go decently. Yeah, yeah, and I I just think that the producers are getting smarter. Um, you know, I think they're getting cleaner. Mm-hmm. Um, to take nothing away from the Jacques Solos wines, but <laughs> those kind of headed down a dark path and be, kind of became caricatures of, of what they used to be. Yeah. And so now they're these really aldehydic, odd-tasting wines. But that notwithstanding, a lot of the producers are just making super fresh, concentrated flavors. Um, one producer in particular that, that is a larger producer that is making really exceptional wines is Laulier. Uh-huh. And their their Blanc de Blanc is not terribly expensive, and it is just gorgeous. I mean, it has some reductive notes to it, but it's still really fresh and and 
rich. I mean, it's kind of like what, what you want when you drink champagne. Um, so yeah, that, that's been kind of the latest revelation for me. I mean, it's, I mean, I love Vimard and, and all those guys, the more well-known, but this, this guy, I mean, you, I would imagine you could find it at more places because it's not a grower producer, mm-hmm. um, but just really delicious stuff. Yeah, and I think the other thing that's cool about the one thing I the other thing I love about champagne, and I talk I say this to people from time to time, is like the other great thing about champagne is, you know, people in my position who are a little bit newer to the industry bemoan that, oh, you know, if I'd come along fifteen twenty years earlier. I could have drank first growth Bordeaux. I could have drank first, you know, uh, Grand Cru Burgundy. And, and those things are, you know, unless someone else is opening it or unless you really want to throw down some cash, those things are basically beyond even someone in the industry um, to buy. Mm-hmm. And the the world's finest champagne is not cheap, but it is uh, not that expensive. And you can get really amazing, and- really high quality champagne for for a fraction of the price you would pay for those other regions and and to me that's the thing that's exciting if you want to like if you want to treat yourself and you want to understand what makes like world-class wine champagne is a great place to go because you can buy the greatest stuff and it's like you know a couple hundred bucks not to say that's nothing but it's not you know insane um you're absolutely right and 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 particularly if if someone ever wanted to know well you talk what's minerality what's that all about (laughs) try this yeah i some champagne i mean it's the most overt example of minerality that I mean, aside from you know maybe a a Riesling or a Gruner, yeah. um, it just it just speaks to the where it's grown and yeah I mean it's just it, it and it reveals so much each ta- each sip is a little different so yeah yeah I'm uh, I'm a big uh, champagne head Every, you know this year in particular I I, I bought heavy into uh, a lot of the pre sales this year gotcha well so tell me where I tell me which restaurant I need to go I'm assuming Sea Star. Yeah, Sea Star is is the is the Champagne headquarters this, gotcha. this year. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. I will... we, we've, we've expanded a little bit over at John Heavy's take, but um, with the, with the current Psalm crew I have, who also love Champagne, it's been it's been kind of fun to to see those go out to tables. All right. Well, I'm going to sneak into the bar one of these nights soon, and you'll you'll see a something will disappear off your inventory, and you'll you'll hopefully oh, know it was me, um, and uh, make it easier. Anyhow, Eric, I really appreciate your time. I know you're a busy man, yeah. um, but uh, great to Anytime. talk with you. And uh, was... we'll keep our eyes out for the for the bourbon in 2018 and for the yeah. the, gin, the Wildwood gin and uh, and vodka on store shelves now. Right. Well, it was a pleasure talking to you too. And anytime, love great. love to chat. Thanks. Thanks again to Eric Leadholm for joining me on Disgorged. You can find Wildwood Spirits in stores throughout the Pacific Northwest or on Twitter at Wildwood Spirits. As for me, you can check out my website, www.vinetrainings.com, that's Vine with a V, or find me on both Instagram and Twitter at ZJabal, that's Z-G-E-B-A-L-L-E. Thanks again for listening to Disgorged, and cheers. Ha, ha, ha.